Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Vern Henson. Glad to have you along. And today, uh, we're going to introduce you to a woman who's worn several different hats over the course of her career. Everything from uh, being a police officer and investigator during her service in the Navy and earning a doctorate of business psychology to eventually establishing her own training company almost three years ago. But before we bring her in, allow me to introduce you to the man who runs things around here, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I'm doing great. How are you today? It's a lovely day in the neighborhood. If I could, i talk real quickly about our recent episode on juries. At least personally, I've been kind of amazed at the amount of questions and, and comments that I've received in person from family and friends about that. In fact, I just wanted to give you a heads up. My nephew is in the middle of studying the court system, and I actually suggested to my sister that she have him listen to the episode because I think it's full of wisdom and behind the scenes looks at things. And did so did he uh, listen to it? Yet, or she just suggested because I'd like to get his uh, his feedback. He, he has not listened to it yet, and that may be because he's grounded from electronic devices right now. Oh, so so I'm hoping that was. I don't want to get anybody in any further trouble. Listen, I, I tried to frame it that this was homework, that this this wasn't this wasn't enjoyment or entertainment. This was for his own good. <laughs> hey, I like to think that we're entertaining from time to time. <laughs> Every once, in a while. well, at least you and I find each other entertaining. Yes. So yeah. excited about uh, the conversation today. I have known. I was going to say young lady just to try and be nice. I have known this lady for a couple of years now, and I attended one of her trainings and it really made an impact on me. So I'm excited to have her here today. So what can you tell us about her? Well, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as I brought us into the episode, our guest today is the owner and a training consultant with Spectrum Training Solutions, which provide law enforcement officers and other first responders customized training helps them improve their interactions with the special needs population and also maximize safety. She also serves as the director of special needs for the Jewish Community Center of Metropolitan Detroit. She received a master's degree in forensic psychology, and she holds a doctorate of business psychology. We welcome Dr. Stephanie Zoltowski-Zordia to the podcast. Did I get it all right? Did I say it correctly? You did. It's correct. And when you list it all one after the other, I'm like, wow, it's impressive, isn't it? Smart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you earned all that stuff. So just sit there and let us read them all off. You know, I know it's almost like it's it's a little too much. Then you have a conversation. You're like, oh, I guess she's just normal. (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. Hey, if it's okay with you, I'm going to call you Stephanie today. Stephanie sounds fantastic. Hey, hey Brenda, I have to tell you this real quick. We, we were talking a couple of weeks ago and I told her that in my phone, I have Dr. Stephanie listed there. For whatever reason, she found that to be amusing, but but it helps to separate her. I mean, if, if I earned a doctorate, <laughs> I, I'd be pretty daggone proud about it. I don't care. If I earn the title of doctor, I'm making my kid's teacher at school call me doctor. I want everybody to call me that. I earn that title. Well, you know, it's, it's like it's like on all my T-shirts, I'd have a DR period up here on there, just like almost like a Nike logo, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just like in that Seinfeld episode, they had to keep calling him maestro. You know, yeah. I, that's my title. You call me that. Sometimes I'll ask people to say it. And um, other times I'm like, no, the people are going to think I'm stuck up or like bougie if I include doctor. 
So sometimes it, you know, it comes out when it needs to. Yeah, well, it's funny. <laughs> I, I have to remind myself that she is a doctor because she is one of the most down to earth people that I've dealt with, which I think helps her in her job. But before we talk about her current job, Stephanie, I want to talk about the Navy. And the first thing I want to know is why the Navy? Uh, well, it's obviously the best branch out of all of them, oh, obviously. Yes. Oh, yes. Some previous guests would disagree with you, but that's I don't want to start a big <laughs> argument. <laughs> that's for another podcast. Yes. I chose the Navy because my I have a long family history of military and my dad was in the Navy. And I graduated from Grand Valley with a degree in criminal justice right when the economy completely died in 2008. Oh, the Lakers, Grand Valley, GVSU. I like it. Yes. Yep. I was a Laker. So I was like, this is a perfect opportunity. And I chose to enlist um, in the Navy because I wanted to do the hands-on law enforcement work instead of the officer side, just sitting behind the desk. So I enlisted and, you know, it, it was off. So I, I figured this is a great opportunity. Let's do it now. But timing's everything, isn't it? Go, go to school for four years just to have everything crash. Thank you for all that. <laughs> exactly. So you join the Navy and I don't know how it is in the Navy. I wasn't Navy. But do, do you get to choose your job when you go in? Is that one of the things that you get to choose is assuming that you're qualified for the job that you want? Typically, yes, you do get to choose. It also depends. I mean, like you're saying, the qualifications it depends on your ASVAB score and it depends on the availability of the number of people in that rate at the time. Um, so I was able to choose my job and it was either law enforcement or medical. That's what it came down to. And I ended up going the law enforcement route. That was a good choice. I just have to throw out a quick story here. There was a guy that I worked with that was a Navy veteran, but his job... He was a cook on submarines, and I'm pretty yeah. sure that he glowed until the time that he retired from our agency. I'm not saying he was exposed to things he shouldn't have been exposed to on the submarines, but he had a certain pale glow to him that others did not have. Was his name Steven Seagal? Because I think that was the plot of that one movie he was in back in the early 90s. It, it was not Steven Seagal, but his first name was Steve. Scared me there for oh, a second. Wow. I thought maybe you oh. knew who we were talking about. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, So you join the Navy and you go to basic training. Then you go to, a, does the Navy call it tech school or what do they call your, your specialty school? A school. Where, a school you go yeah. to A school. Where, where did you go after A school? I waited for them to tell me this is where you're going. And my next in line, it was either Bahrain or it was Sicily. And my name was called for NAS Siganella in Sicily. And I was fresh 21 and headed overseas. So it was really fun. I was really excited. I've just noticed that there seems to be a pattern of really long words in your, your history. I mean, your name, the name of the city that you're going to be assigned to. I mean, you had to be a really good speller. You know, I used to be winner of many spelling bees when I was in elementary school. So good thing I was a smart cookie. It followed me all the way through just to be a cop. You need it. So what, what was your first exposure? What, had you been to Italy before or Sicily before? No, it was my first time. I, I went over on a, on a big Air Force plane showed up. I had, you know, my couple sea bags full of stuff, you know, first experience it's, and it's an air station. So it basically showed up to like a little mini airport and it, it was very strange. Like there was, there were goats walking around all over the place, just outside of base, tons of random stuff that I, I just didn't expect to see, but I just, I couldn't wait to eat all the pasta, drink all the wine, 
look at all of the beautiful Italian men. <laughs> it, it was a little different than I expected. Yeah, Brent noticed she didn't say anything about getting to work and any of the things that she was hoping to yeah. get to right away. None of it had to do oh, with work. Well, I mean, I guess I, I guess I could do some work too in between. But you're fresh out of school. You know, you, you haven't experienced the world yet. So all this was really new to you, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. And I was ready to party. I was ready to go on all sorts of, you know, exploration stuff. I was excited to learn Italian. And it, it was a really great first command. But it was very eye-opening, you know, going right from undergrad to boot camp, having like the sense of accomplishment, finishing my degree to all of a sudden going back to the bottom of the food chain. So it, it was interesting. A little wake up call. Hey, you don't understand. I just graduated. I'm not scum. I swear. Right. I was like, I know stuff. And they're like, we don't give a shit. Shut up. <laughs> so, so what was your job actually called? When you get there, what was the position that you held? Master at arms. Ooh, master at arms. Now that sounds interesting and also kind of violent. Tell me about master at arms. Master at arms, very glorified, fancy word for patrol officer, training officer, um, anti-terrorism and force protection, um, gate guard, dispatcher, lots of different options. Um, while I was there, I had the opportunity to work in dispatch. I did patrol. I did, um, you know, everybody has to be a gate guard. It's like your hazing kind of portion. Everybody's got to do it. And then I worked with training for a little bit, too. Well, I want to talk about gate guard for a second. And because the thing is, is that a lot of people, uh, when they come into a profession, that they get sent to something that's seemingly menial, for lack of a better term. But when you're talking about being a gate guard at a military installation, that actually is a very, very important job. Because if the wrong people get into the gate, then bad things happen once they're inside the gate. What, what did you find about the people that you were working with that helped you fill that billet right there? Um, you know, it definitely was a very important job, even though it felt kind of menial sometimes. But, you know, the longer I was there, the more I realized, hey, this is actually very important when it comes down to the safety of everybody on base, everybody that is living around the base. Uh, but it was definitely an interesting opportunity interacting with local nationals and other military branches that would come through as well as, you know, high ranking guests that would come through. So we had all of our procedures and everything that we did for varying various people coming to the base. Um, but it, it was pretty interesting, not as interesting as my other positions, but definitely a very necessary one. Well, one of the things you brought up there that, that I, I want to talk to you about is you were introduced to a multitude of new cultures almost simultaneously because you, you have yeah. the military culture, but then you also have, have the Sicilian culture. And then e e each military installation also has a, a culture. And then the jobs within that, that particular uh, uh, organization, they also have there. So, so the mastered arms, they also have a culture. Right. I, I find it interesting watching, especially young people who are being exposed to the world for the first time, trying to make the adjustment to all those different cultures right there. It, it, was that a difficult thing for you? You know, to, to be honest, it wasn't as difficult for me as it was for younger folks. Um, you know, a lot of the people that just turned 17 or 18, fresh out of high school, going to boot camp, uh, because I had been on my own 
you know, for a few years before because of school. So I knew that there were going to be transitions and challenges. I just didn't know how many. Um, but I, I'm a very type A control freak kind of person. So I know it's shocking. I know. But a lot of a lot of those things, it, they were very unexpected. So I had to really check myself um, and tell myself, hey, you know what? It is what it is. You're here. Embrace it. Embrace the suck, as we say. And, and run with it. Well, and I think it's the, the the point I'm trying to make out of this whole thing is that in the military, it's not unusual for an 18 year old or sometimes even a 17 year old to be put into a, a criminal justice law enforcement related job. And, and yet they're able to right. make the adjustment. But in the civilian world, typically speaking, people aren't getting hired for those types of jobs until they're 21. And in fact, California, uh, there had been a push to make the minimum age for law enforcement 25, unless there was, they, they had a, a, obtained a, a four-year degree. And, and it's just one of those things where, where I love talking to people like you because I could argue both sides of it. Because when you talk about the development of the prefrontal cortex, you know, the, the, the rational part of the brain is not fully developed until, you know, early to mid-20s for people. But the military has right. somehow has been able to pull it off for a couple centuries now. And so what was your experience? Do, do you think it's better that, that, that we wait if we can or do maybe we need to make some adjustments on the civilian side to at least consider it? That's a really good question. Um, I Because of brain development, just like you had mentioned, I feel like there should, there should be a longer period of time before someone is put into a role that they're expected to make life or death situations in a matter of a split second. When I enlisted, they had just changed the policy that anybody could um, enlist to be an MA. Uh, they went from, you have to be an E5, to now we you only have to be an E3. So if you've got a degree coming out of boot camp, you, you're an a, E3 already. So somebody would have to be essentially at least 21 years old, but that still leaves about four or five years you know, room for brain development. So I, I think it would be great to set a higher age limit because that's a lot of pressure for someone to be put in when their brain is not fully developed in every area. We're not saying, at least I'm not saying, I won't speak for you. I'm not saying that, that they can't have a role in the law enforcement community, but it's something that we should look at critically to maybe restrict that role in the law enforcement community, simply not because they're, they're, they're not eager, they're not qualified, but because they're human. And because of the fact we're human, right. that part of the brain isn't fully developed yet. Exactly. All right. Exactly. So, so, so uh, first post. Okay. Uh, did you go anywhere else after that during your career? I, uh, I went to 32nd street in San Diego and also the mobile security unit in Imperial beach. The mobile security unit in, in San Diego, what's that all about? That was essentially doing security and transfers for high profile military um, and doing security transfers for ordnance, for weapons, for, um, like I said, high profile um, admirals, things like that. So we would escort them or we would go to certain events that needed additional support, additional security. Um, that was an interesting unit. Wait, wait, and to put things into context for our listeners, uh, when you were in, that was really at the height uh, of the war on terror. 
So, so, so the need for security for, for both our, our high ranking personnel and, and for particular pieces of equipment, that was a real need. I mean, what, it, that this it wasn't yeah. a cush job. Right. Right. And it, at first when I, when I got there, I was like, that's all we're doing. And then when I thought about it, I was like, that's really cool. Wait, you, you get to, you get to see people that maybe you see on the news, but you're up close and personal and you, you get the little behind the scenes look at things and that, that can be interesting, but, but it can also be disappointing because you find out people you looked up to, they're just like you. Yeah. Total disappointment. Yeah, that's good. I thought it was cool. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, so then the, what was Imper- where's Imperial beach? What's, what's that? That's like the furthest Southern, almost the furthest Southern city, um, on the other side of Mexico. So we'd be on base. It's near like San Isidro, um, Chula Vista. Um, you could literally from the base, see the border and a huge Mexican flag that was just waving. And it was really weird. We'd be off for like our morning runs running around the base and you just see this flag every morning and you're like, it's literally right there. And it was it was so strange um, seeing that every day. So you spend the time in, in these two places, but but eventually your enlistment time uh, is it, coming to an end. And then you have to make the decision, hey, am I going to re-enlist, make the, you know, the, uh, a re-up for another four, or I'm going to go and do something different. So tell me about that. I uh, very quickly, once I got to my second command, was like, you know what? I did my time. Thank you so much. I will not have another. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am happy to have served, but I shall not do it anymore. Right. And you know what? I think everybody in America should serve a couple of years in the military, uh, not only there. for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not only for the commitment to your country, you know, obviously, but it really humbles you. It gives you great leadership skills. It teaches you that the world does not revolve around you. I don't have any military experience, but I did coach my son's soccer team, and I got the exact same uh, feelings out of that as well. So <laughs> I have an inkling <laughs> well, of what it's like. Well, you, you know, it, it's interesting. Going, going back to the brain development thing, you know, I, I, I would imagine that there are a lot of parents out there that have sent their kids off to college, and the, the kid comes back after a semester, and the grades, well, there aren't any grades. You know, because they, they either failed everything or they had to withdraw because they were failing. And, and parents are going, what were you thinking? And part of it was they weren't thinking, at least not thinking the way that, that you and I think now. And one thing that could be said, in addition to what you said for, for everybody doing military service, is it gets you a little bit closer to development of the prefrontal cortex. And, and so that you can make yeah. better decisions. Plus, you're earning money towards college. But anyway, I digress. So so you make the decision. You're not going to, to, to re-up. Uh, what did you do then? Um, I was finishing up my master's at that time. So I only had a few months left that I was finishing up my thesis, moved back home and started working for um, the Department of Labor in Detroit as an investigator, Um, did that for a little bit. And then that's when I started teaching psychology. So I, I started my teaching portion of my career back in uh, 2014. What, what drew you to psychology? What, 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 what was the draw that said, you know what, after all this stuff, after the CJ major, all that stuff, psychology is where it's going to be. I find human behavior fascinating. And I love understanding why people behave in certain ways and kind of the, the stepping stones that lead to someone's behavior, because there's always a root cause. People don't just behave one way just for the heck of it. 
You know, whether it's they had divorced parents or they grew up homeless or they had a substance abuse issue. Like there's always something that is an explanation. And I love understanding the reason behind the behavior, whether it's criminal behavior or it's just everyday human behavior in our society. It's both interesting and terrifying because especially, especially now as a new parent, you start to realize the, the tremendous impact that you have on these little people, not just now, but in the future. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like I have to be right now. Don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. Don't screw it up. But, but, <laughs> but, but, but you, you start, you start teaching and, and uh, you didn't just stay with a master's. You also went back to school and, and you got a, a, a further advanced degree. Yeah. If I couldn't be overqualified enough, I was like, let's go back to school again because I just love writing papers so much and doing homework endlessly. And yeah, I rolled my master's right into my doctorate degree. And um, it was a, it was a great program. Uh, I really wanted to figure out how to run a business from the human behavior perspective, because I don't like numbers. I don't like math class. So how do I do that and avoid numbers? All right. So I avoided the MBA and I said, you know what? Let's look at this. And you can't run a successful business without focusing on the human factor. Oh. Your, you know, people are the thing that drive a business, you know? So I wanted to focus on that productivity, retention, sustainability, you know, from the business aspects, looking at how people behave. And I actually had a really interesting conversation today with a new client of mine, um, it's a a hospital um, system actually. And we were just talking about how companies need to really invest in their people more because it leads to higher productivity, higher morale and lower, you know, lower turnover rates. You and I, we think along the same lines in many places. And this is one of them from, from the law enforcement perspective. If we don't understand how people make decisions or why they make the decisions they do, then how can we, possibly hope to influence those decisions. If you don't understand the right. process behind it, then you're just hoping and hope is not a plan. And so it's funny how the business side has kind of figured that out a little bit better and a little bit more quickly than perhaps we have. But we need to do that because all the stuff back here, like you talked about before, that has happened to me as a kid and growing up and everything has an impact on the decisions I make now as a police officer, now as a sergeant, as yeah. an investigator. And, and so I appreciate what you do because it makes a difference. It really does. Yeah. And it's really rewarding too. You can see from different locations that I've worked, you know, you can tell when some people aren't really interested in listening to what I have to say at the beginning. And then you start talking, it's, it's a comfortable, neutral environment that they feel like they can actually share their opinions without being you know, reprimanded or ostracized or anything. And they end up saying, you know what, this was a really good class and it wasn't what I thought it was, you know, so kind of humanizing it more and realizing, yeah, this is an important topic that everybody needs to be caught up on. Now, now eventually you, you ended up at the Jewish, is it the Jewish Federation? No. So Jewish Federation is kind of like the dad okay. of the JCC, so okay. the Jewish Community Center. Um, is where I'm at. Yep. Started there five years ago. How did you end up coming to that, that position there? 
So I had moved to Chicago for a few years um, and I was teaching at a couple schools there. And when I moved back home, I was looking for a new position and I was looking for something in the special needs field or something uh, related to that population. And that position became available. And I, that, I remember that week I interviewed for three different jobs. I got three different offers all like in the same week, you know, cause everything happens in threes and took that job. And it's been wonderful since I started. Now, now you, you said that you were looking to work with, with the population. Now, what, what mm-hmm. drew you to the special needs population? I started volunteering for special Olympics back when I was 13 years old in Farmington. And I helped out at a lot of the sport tournaments Um, you know, baseball, basketball, every time they would have a tournament, I would volunteer for it. And I just really loved it. You know, like something like made me warm and fuzzy, you know, and it was like, this is something that really makes me feel good. They deserve it. And I love doing it. So I started there, kept doing that through high school, did volunteering through undergrad. Um, And then when I got back home, I was like, you know what, I'm going to think about something that's going to make me happy long term i you know i don't want to be miserable in my career so let me find something that you know intrinsically motivates me and let me use that to drive my career forward and, and so so k- kind of give me an overview if you would uh what you do in your position now so i'm in charge of year round and summer programming for kids as young as two and a half up to 28 years old um, we have summer camps for Um, inclusion. So we've got kids that have a one-on-one counselor that are integrated and included with their uh, neurotypical peers. Then we have two teen and young adult programs that focus on independent living skills, um, vocational training, field trips, physical fitness, mental health, um, meal, you know, meal prep, healthy eating, like making them as independent as each of them can be on their own level. Uh, t- t- I want to talk specifically, if we could, about camp, uh, because uh, w- one of the things that you had told me about, Mike, Mike, we can't talk during this time right here because that, that time right there is dedicated to camp. Because when camp rolls around, it, it, it is an all in for you, isn't it? It's oh, yeah, it's it's seven days a week work because during the week I'm dealing with, you know, camp campers and staff and then evenings and weekends are parents. So it's kind of a cyclical who I'm whose fire I'm putting out, who needs help with this, prepping for the next week. Um, so I'm, you know, I stop doing everything else and I give a hundred percent um to camp when that season comes around. And it's it's very rewarding and it's it's a lot of hard work, but being able to see how much fun the kids have and how appreciative the families are, you know, it hundred percent I will do it over and over again. Love it. But going back to what you said that you, you needed to spend your life doing something that, that mattered. If, if this work didn't matter, then it probably wouldn't be worth the kind of effort that you have to put into. Because when, when we're talking about camp, camp camp's a, a, a very logistic, heavy process anyway. But when you start talking about including those uh, with special requirements, it becomes even more logistically uh, overwhelming the class that I attended. We'll talk about it in a second here, but the class that I attended when you brought up camp, 
the the way that the kids that were sitting there that were on the panel, the way their face lit up, that time made an impact on their life. Yeah. And a lot of the kids have been coming to camp from the age, you know, from five years old. One of them that was in the in the panel actually started as a five year old and he's 15 now. Uh, you know, they, they grow up coming to camp and because of the cost of camp, um, a lot of families have to save all year round just to send them, you know, to four or eight weeks of camp. So it's something that they look forward to every single year. And it, it takes about eight months to logistically get it all set up. So it, you know, it's a year round commitment to make 10 weeks really, really awesome uh, for these kids. And it's important for our listeners to understand that when you're dealing with the special needs population, uh, it increases the need for security from keeping them safe from things that might harm them. But there's an added an added danger that has to be considered uh, with, with your group because there are those that want to do harm to, to those at the camp simply because they're Jewish. And, and that, that's a whole nother thing that you have to be concerned with. It just, it just seems like it could be overwhelming. You know, it, it definitely can be. Uh, and it's like, it keeps happening over and over again. And you think it's 2023. Like, can we just give people a break already? You know, and it, it's fascinating to me that people still have so much hate, you know, in their heart for people that have done absolutely nothing to them. Um, our goal with with the kids at camps, um, our goal is for our kids to not know that anything is going on because they're there to have fun, to feel safe, to try new things. And security and anti-Semitism is one of the last things I want them to even be aware of when they come to camp. And you guys do a great job of that. But all the people that work there can't have that attitude because they have to be aware that there is that that belief. And you, you talked about innocent people. Is there a more innocent group that, than the group of kids that come to the camp? I mean, seriously. That's exactly right. They're so vulnerable. They're so innocent, but they're so excited. Oh. They, you know, a lot of them don't know any better. They don't know anything different than I'm just going to go to camp and I'm going to do yoga and arts and crafts and it's going to be a great day. You know, and what a way to think. It's the highlight for many of them. Right. It is. It is. They ask, you know, what field trips we're going on in January. They want to know six months in advance what they're doing. And as luck would have it, they're, they're, they're fortunate to have somebody like you who has those answers because as you, you like to be in charge and you like to be organized. So it's good. <laughs> but with those kids, it has to be incredibly, I can't, I can't even think of the right word. I, I'm talking about the parents when their parents see the kids enjoying themselves at camp or listen to their stories when they come back from, from camp for a parent that just has to be, this is it. This is worth this is worth saving year round. Oh, it is. Absolutely. And I always have to remind my staff, you know, they'll get frustrated with certain behaviors or they're having an off day or whatever. And I remind my staff, you are with these kids for eight hours a day. These parents are 24 hour parents. You know, you don't see the routine in the morning or, you know, the meltdown that happens at the end of camp or what, you know, before bed is that you really have to be mindful 
of the struggles that our families go through because you only have them for such a short period of time. And these families really need a break. So if it means for 10 weeks, they can drop their kid off and not have to worry about what they're doing for the whole day, it makes the job completely worth it. Absolutely. And so I think one of the things you said there is a nice transition for me. At some point, you made the decision, you know what, there's, there's a training need out there in the first responder world. Uh, tell me about that. That, that I, I don't want to say revelation because you probably knew it, but but what made you say, you know what, that there's a training need and I'm going to help fill it. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to really focus on at camp was safety out in the community. And I wanted the campers to feel comfortable interacting with people that wear uniforms, whether it's police, fire, a nurse, you know, anyone that has some kind of a uniform on, I wanted them to feel comfortable when they go out into the community. And I realized very early that this is two populations that really don't have contact with each other in a neutral or a positive environment. You know, the only opportunities for them to interact are when something is wrong. And that's, you can't train in that kind of environment. Um, So I thought, you know, this would be a great chance for both of these populations to understand each other better and for police departments to serve their community better based on the needs of the community. And autism is growing at an incredibly rapid rate. So people on the spectrum, people with special needs are not going anywhere. The prevalence is significantly increasing. So, you know, people in the community need to adjust accordingly to service our community in a safe way. You started a company and you started developing training for for those in the the first responder field. As I said earlier, I was fortunate to be able to uh, attend one of your classes. Uh, But for our listeners, kind of give them an idea of what a training day looks like. So the most common training I do is a four-hour block, and we go over a variety of special needs. Um, We do talk a lot about autism because it is so prevalent uh, in our community. We talk about behaviors that you might see. We talk about um, different characteristics that should sort of be a red flag for you or a a light bulb going off in your head. Um, We talk about social symptoms that they might observe out in the community or out on the job, um, and then give them tips and tricks and different resources on how to safely interact with them and things that they should or shouldn't do with this population. Um, And one of the biggest things is pausing for one or two seconds before they respond, Um, because you don't always have to jump to, you know, to hands-on. You don't always have to force people to do something, you know, ask, tell, make does not work with this population. Um, And just giving them a couple seconds to breathe and think about, you know what, let me try this option before I restrain this person, you often have a much better outcome. So it's been a recurring theme that we're talking about a more effective response and not just an instantaneous jump into what I typically do with training. Now, in your experience, uh, how often did you find that the officers had a difficult time making that transition between just talking to someone like me, Joe Blow on the street, versus someone in the special needs community where they literally have to change their mindset when having an interaction with them? How difficult was that for them? Yeah, it's interesting because it kind of differed based on 
the location of the department and the number of years that the officer has been a police officer. Uh, Many times people that have been on the job a long time are often set in their ways and it's difficult to undo what's been done for 20 years. Um, So I have found that a lot of the younger officers have really been receptive and very open-minded to learning different techniques. Some, some of the more mature adults, I'll say very nicely. Um, I'm right here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I wasn't going to call you old right there, but I mean, <laughs> you know, now that you is. said it. <laughs> um, but I found that, you know, some of them are a little bit more closed-minded or they, they think, you know, it's my way or the highway. And that doesn't really work anymore. So it, it's a difficult transition, I think, for anybody, not just law enforcement. It's it's a matter of kind of retraining your brain when it comes to appropriate responses. All right. I'm going to put you on kind of a spot and I'm just going to share Uh-oh. with you some of my favorite parts of the class. Okay. That, okay. that I attended. Uh, number one, the, the part you just talked about right there, when you talk about the officer's mindset in the class that I attended, there happened to be an officer who had a child that was autistic. If the prevalence is increasing rapidly in society, then we also have to recognize that that means that there's a greater likelihood that one of our own is going to be directly affected by somebody from the special needs population. And, and you, you had told me that, that you'd had that happen several times. You know, an officer, and, and when an officer expresses concerns about an interaction that their kid might have with another officer, then that tells me that there's a real need for concern because we don't know what we don't know. Yeah, and that exactly, we don't know what we don't know, has been the recurring theme of conversations that I have with various industries related to this topic. Um, And the more I do this training, every single class has one or two people that has a child with special needs that has outright it, you know, given an example or shared a story or come up to me during a break, uh, you know, so if it's only one or two, I wonder how many more have not said anything yet for whatever reason, uh, you know, it, it, it's got to be there. Well, it, it was interesting to me because in the class, when that officer uh, made that statement, People were listening to you, and, and you, you were exactly right. You, you described the teaching, you know, that people start off the day and, and their attention maybe isn't as focused as you want it to be. But as the day goes on, you can see it narrowing. And when that officer says, hey, I have a child that is autistic, you could see everybody in the class kind of turn and look, and it got deathly quiet in there. And now we're taking this thing from the abstract world into the world of reality, and it completely changed the complexion of the day. Yeah. And, you know, I think the more we talk, a lot of people realize, you know what? I see this all the time. We're just putting a label to what it actually is now. You know, and people are saying, you know, my my kid does this or I have a neighbor that does this. Um, And I think to them, it kind of becomes more real because the conversation's being had and we're normalizing it. You know, the stigma of special needs, quote unquote, um, is definitely changing. And I think it's becoming more open and more accepted than it was in the previous generation. 
It's like with anything, awareness and education are the keys to, you know, letting that bias or we fear what we don't know sometimes. So once you educate somebody, that fear goes away, or at least that's your hope. I found that a lot with with police officers, actually. And that's with everybody. If you're not familiar, if you're not comfortable, we often will just shy away from it. Um, So one of the things that we do in summer camp um, for the last couple of years now, we have a variety of fire and police departments come to the JCC for our 4th of July party. And they interact directly with our campers in that fun environment. And they bring their patrol cars. They bring canine. Um, Oakland County Sheriff's brought their Marine boat last year from from their unit, which was pretty cool. So the whole goal is for everyone to be more comfortable with everyone. Uh, another thing that that I, I will admit that I knew nothing about before your class, and, and when you started talking about, I was like, son of a gun, you, you talked about micro seizures, and it, when you were walking through, the, it, it's like it, you'll miss them, you, you'll miss them, and and, and you showed a video, and, it's, and you go see if you can pick out what when it's happening. Can, can you just tell me real quickly uh, what, what a micro seizure is and why it's important? So I think you're referring to absent seizures. Yes. Is that yes. that what you were? Yes. So the absent seizures are so quick, they're very difficult to medically detect. And many times looking at somebody, if they have an absent seizure, it almost looks like they just lost their train of thought because it happens in one or two seconds. You know, you might see like the eyes flutter up or like a heavier blink and a pause. And then the person goes right back into their regular conversation. Um, And having those can affect a person's mood. It can affect their sleep, uh, which ultimately can affect their behavior. So if you don't know that a person just had a seizure, they may become combative and the officer doesn't have an explanation why other than they're visually seeing combative behavior. And in the class, you emphasize that you have to be intentionally looking for these things, but you can't intentionally look for something if you don't know they exist, which was raising my hand. I didn't know that they existed. So I, I thought that that part was really good. And, and then another part that, man, it just it just hit me was when you said, listen, you, you need to understand that there's a difference between a meltdown and a tantrum. And, and I'm like, well, that doesn't make any daggone sense until you explained it to me. And, and so r- real quickly, what's the difference between those two different types of events? So when you think of a tantrum, you think of a kid whining and crying because they didn't get their ice cream, right? Or they didn't get their video games. So they're having a tantrum and having very similar behaviors to a meltdown, but they're doing it because they didn't get something that they wanted. So they're choosing to act out because they feel like life is so unjust, right? When you look at a meltdown, meltdowns are very sensory related. And a person having a meltdown will often struggle to explain what is wrong or what is bothering them. And they will act out in a similar way, but they cannot control what they're doing. Um, That meltdown is the communication of something is wrong, but I can't verbally tell you what it is. So you'll have somebody that maybe has a difficult time with emotional regulation, or they can't tell you something hurts on their body. They don't know what body part it is. So they will have a meltdown as, and that's the form of of communication that we need to understand that's communicating a message to us. They're not doing that just to be a spoiled brat, 
right? They're doing it because they can't control their behavior. Um, and many of them will have, will they'll go into a blackout or they'll have auditory exclusion. So they've got no idea what even happened until it's over. So it, it's very interesting, but they often can look the same. But, but, but the, for, from a, a first responder perspective, it's important to understand the difference between the two because one is a choice and one you can't control. And if we interpret it incorrectly, that the person's not listening to me, they're not following my commands because, uh, you know, all law enforcement says, listen, if they don't follow your commands, you know, ask, tell, make, right? Ask, tell, make. And they don't have the physical capacity, the mental capacity at that point to respond. And that's when we start having maybe some of these negative interactions between the special needs community and first responders. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I really try and emphasize is how much responding officers have control over sensory things that can completely mitigate, you know, a meltdown. It may be making sure the TV is turned off when you show up at the house or make sure that the dog is in the backyard and not barking in your face, um, you know, or only going in with one other officer and not all four people and canine, uh, you know, so officers have a lot of control, but if they don't know what they need to control, then they won't be able to do it. So starting off with that education, going back to the, you don't know what you don't know, um, really helps it because they do have a lot of control. Um, and when I do these trainings for dispatch, I also try and explain to them, you know, you're the bridge between the family and the responding officer. And sometimes the officer has a million things going on. You may need to remind them, turn the volume down, you know, turn on the air conditioning if it's really hot or go outside or get rid of the dog. Like it, it matters to have a whole team effort. Um, dispatch often can be a really beneficial part um, to responding to a situation. Well, what if an officer goes into it, and this is under the uh, idea that they know that a person is either autistic or has special needs, but what if they're out to a call an adult uh, who is in the special needs community or has autism and they don't know, they show up and how can they look for signs or how can they deal with that sort of situation when they really don't have any control other than they need to get the situation under control? Yeah. Well, and whether the person has a diagnosis or not, there's always behavioral red flags that we look for, right? Like if we're talking about anxiety, um, people kind of balling up their fists, pacing back and forth, um, you know, their ears getting red, like there's, there's signs to it, right? So when it comes to somebody with special needs, many times we'll see them fidgeting or like stimming, um, whether it's flapping their arms, jumping up and down. Uh, we may see somebody that walks on their toes. That's a big red flag. Uh, it might be someone wearing noise reducing headphones that helps reduce sensory input in the environment. So there's a lot of things to look for. And there's always signs before meltdown. There is always a cause for it. Um, and it's our job to figure out what those things are. Well, it, it's important to point out too, that, that as, as first responders, we often are the sensory overload. We're walking sensory overload in a lot of cases yes. because we, we, we've got prep radios that are blaring and you get to be my age. You don't hear as well. You've got to have it up louder than, 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 than other Turn people. Do. You, you come in cars with lights and sirens and, and it, 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 we, we usually come in multiples and, and there's just so many things going on that, that can make the situation worse, not intentionally, 
but but it can and that leads me into the next part right here because th- this made the biggest impact on me uh, at your training and that was when you brought the panel in tell me about the panel so the parent panel is always the favorite part of of the full day training and i have some of my camp families come to the session with their parents um, and I, I pick different level of abilities and different communication levels. So I, sometimes I'll bring a camper that's nonverbal and uses a device. Sometimes I'll bring one that's very outspoken and says exactly what's on his mind. Um, and it's it's a, an opportunity to give the participants a chance to see some of the special needs that we've been talking about throughout the day and then have the opportunity to interact with them and ask them questions um, in a non-threatening environment. I was blown away by the, by the folks, uh, the, 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 the parents, but, but the kids especially. And when, when you ask the question, though, of the parents, what is your biggest fear when it comes to your child and law enforcement? And, and you, could, you could almost see each and every one of them take the, the, this collective deep breath. Talk about, so listen, you need to understand that when we call you, because things have gone really downhill. We don't call you unless we absolutely need you because we're concerned about that. But when we call, we need your help. <laughs> you know, it really was a plea for help on the part of the parents to the people that were in the class. Yeah. And and I think parents, at least the parents on, on the panels, they understand that officers have a very dangerous job. You know, they understand that officer safety is is a very important thing as well. And I think they want both groups to not be afraid of each other. And they want, you know, ultimately they want their child to be safe, but they also don't want the officer to feel like they're unsafe. You know, and it's a matter of communicating that. um, So those biases don't lead to, you know, an unsafe or an unproductive interaction. And I don't know if they talk about it in each of the classes, uh, but there was one mom on the panel that she, she she goes, you just need to understand. She goes, you're seeing my son in a very short period of time and you see how much work it is for me right now to control him and all that. She goes, you got to understand this is all day, every day. It just seems like she, she just seemed like she was exhausted and that she was just saying, hey, listen, there are just times where I need some help. And sometimes that help has to come from you in the first responder field. And I just need to know I can trust you to provide the help and do the best you can, because they were very good at recognizing officer safety. But I need you to do it in, in the best way possible. Yeah. And I, it's very common that single mothers request first responder help um, because we do see it's more, we, we see more males than females with autism uh, and, and other special needs. And as they get older, they get bigger, they get taller. They often don't know what they're capable of or how strong they are. And they may not know, you know, oh, I just punched mom in the face, you know, so they don't, sometimes they don't recognize that or they, they don't know that it's happening during a meltdown. And mom sometimes is fearful, fearful for her own safety. Um, so yeah, when, when she calls 911, it's for a good reason. It's, it's not just, hey, I'm going to tell on you and I'm going to have the police come over and arrest you. 
You know, it's for a good, legit reason. And oftentimes it's not just the mom. You, you also maybe have other siblings that are in the house. So so there is a safety concern, but, but it, we want it to be a controlled safety concern. I can't think of any other way to say it than that. But then they were very realistic, said, you know, because uh, th- there is, in, in some of these cases, a, a draw to uh, bodies of water and say, listen, if, if you catch my kid and my kid is about to go in the body of water, by all means, grab a hold of them and don't let them go in the body of water. Don't avoid the contact just because it, it's going to send them off. I mean, th- there has to be some reasonableness to what's going on. Right. And that kind of makes me think one of the topics we talk about is accountability and expectations. Um, even when like I, I tell people in the classes, just because somebody is on the spectrum or just because someone has special needs does not give them the right to try and hurt you. They don't get to break the law. They need to follow the rules like everybody else has to. You might just need to you know, explain the rules another time or give them a visual or slow things down a little bit. But you, I tell officers, you have every right to leave your shift and go home every night and do it safely. So yes, sometimes they might have to go hands-on. It's obviously not the goal, you know, but everybody has a right to go home and be safe. And as we're wrapping things up here, uh, one of the other things that you do in the class is you have these devices that are used for those who cannot communicate verbally, they're nonverbal, or that maybe struggle with it. And, and you make us play around with it. And uh, the, quite honestly, you, you made me feel a little bit dumb because I, I, I was struggling with trying to get the message across that, that, that of what was going on. But th- that has to be what it's like sometimes between officers and, and a person with special needs. That frustration can also lead to, to bad behavior, can it? Exactly. And one of the goals is to kind of make you guys struggle because you know what you want to say. You just can't get it out, (laughs) you know? So doing that, like people that are device users are very quick with them, just like we are with our cell phone, you know? And if it's their only means of communication, they will get very comfortable with it very quickly because that's what they rely on. Uh, And to throw that device to someone that has never used it before puts you on the spot and makes you realize, oh, you know what? I'm not so good at this, but I know what I'm trying to say, but I can't get it out. And that's exactly the situation that that they're in trying to talk to an officer. Well, and another thing that you brought out, it's always good when you go to a class and they, they bring out the toys. Uh, but, of course. But, 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 exactly. But you brought out a variety, <laughs> a variety of toys. What are those things all about? Those are called fidgets. Um, they can be anything from those poppets that kids love these days. They could be, uh, a paperclip. It really doesn't have to be anything fancy, but it's something that is great for emotion regulation and is a really good distractor for anyone that might be stressed out. They might be nervous, um, unwilling to talk to someone and they help you stay focused. Um, it doesn't just have to be for the special needs population. Uh, like if you go to five below, there's a whole section for fidgets now. It's really cool. It's, I got way too excited when I saw that section. <laughs> My wife, you said she still just uh, twirl her ring all the time. Yeah. That was her yeah, thing. That's exactly. I mean, that that's a stim and the ring is the fidget. So, I mean, neurotypical people do it all the time. The thing that separates it is that our stims look socially normal. You know, so someone twirling their hair or tapping their foot looks normal. 
when you see someone flapping their arms or making, you know, repetitive sounds, that's what sticks out. So it, it's great for emotion regulation for anybody. And you advocated in the class for, for first responders having a little kit, just having it available uh, in their patrol bag or in their vehicle, whatever. Uh, if somebody wanted to get more information about what would be good to include in that, uh, where, where could they find that? You know, everybody has different preferences of what would go into a sensory kit. Um, it could depend on the environment that you're in, but I like to put all my stuff in an ammo can. Uh, one of those plastic ammo cans because they're very durable. You can put a lot of stuff in them. Um, and if you think about your main senses, you can think about your, you know, lights. So you might you might want to put some sunglasses in there. I like to put noise reducing headphones. So our, you know, our hearing, I put fidgets in there. If someone has a difficult time with communication, I put some some rings, communication rings in there that have different words or phrases on them. Um, it, you know, it really depends. Pads of paper for someone that's nonverbal wants to write things down. Um, there's a lot of wiggle room. It really depends on what you're looking for, or what environment you're in. I, I will say, though, it's a relatively low cost investment that could potentially improve the quality of an interaction between a first responder and someone from the special needs population. Yeah. And not even just special needs. I mean, anybody going through a mental health crisis as well Absolutely. has the same benefits from fidgets and, and sensory items. So, so Stephanie, if somebody was interested in bringing you in uh, to provide this training, and I'm going to give you a shout out right here, folks, uh, if your agency hasn't had this type of training, you're not going to find any better on this topic. Where can they get a hold of you? Where can they find more information about the training uh, so that they could bring you in to train their people? So my website is a great starting spot. It's um, Spectrum Training Solutions, LLC.com. Um, they can go there or email me directly. It's same the same name, Spectrum Training Solutions, LLC at Gmail. Um, and they can get a hold of me that way. Um, the training in, in Michigan is approved for funding options as well. So it definitely helps offset with a lot of budget-related challenges after COVID. Um so yeah, it, it's it's a great class. And and just to give you another shout out here, uh, she's expanded beyond the state of Michigan. She's made presentations uh, in other states. I really appreciate the fact that the, the training has been presented uh, both to the sworn side of things and to the dispatch side of things. This is something, in my opinion, that everybody in a first responder agency needs, whether you work in records, whether you work in dispatch, you work in corrections, whatever it's worthwhile training. Uh, go to her website and check it out. And we'll be sure to in, include all that stuff uh, in our show notes. But uh, Stephanie, I appreciate you taking time to be with us today. Uh, it's always great talking to you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Hey, Brent, I, I don't know about you, man, but but it, th this seems to be one of those, I, I don't want to say low hanging fruit, but it seems like relatively simple ways of improving contact between our first responders and the community they serve. Yeah, I guess, like you guys said, you don't know what you don't know until you face it. So uh, again, edu education, awareness is, is definitely key. And you guys were talking about those uh, sensory kits. Well, uh, I'm going to try to go through and uh, find some resources. And, and Stephanie, if you have some you want to send me, we'll put those in the episode page along with your email and all your website ways to contact you right there between the lines of Virtual Academy. Dot com and we'll have all those resources if uh, folks are interested and they want to find out more. Uh, again, they can find that right there in the episode page. Thank you so much for talking with us 
and give you some insight from your profession. It was really interesting. Thank you. Thank you very much. 